And there's kind of nothing magic there, but I think one of the things that, that I really learned firsthand there is just there's a lot of value in in picking a problem and just identifying like all of the rough edges and sort of doing them all well and mm. looking through the whole life cycle and just really making something that works well as a, as a finished unit. Machines are so fast and stores are so big that they give us plenty of latitude to screw things up. The shell, or which is the name we give to the command interpreter. So the operator got a pair of tweezers and very carefully fished the moth out of the relay. Because you all read the mythical man month. And the best motivator in the world for programming is, is scratching your niche. Developers, 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 developers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sourcecraft Podcast. My name is Biang, and on this show we talk with the people behind amazing dev tools and developer experience. Open source authors, maintainers, DevX engineers inside forward-thinking companies, developer advocates and educators, founders of dev tool companies, anyone and everyone who brings joy and delight into our lives as programmers. We talk about their work, we talk about their lives, we talk about their vision of what lies ahead for the world of code. Stay tuned. So I'm here today with Nelson Elhaj. Nelson is the creator of the open source code search engine LiveGrep, uh, used by organizations like Stripe and Mozilla. He is one of the creators of Sorbet, the Ruby type checker that's in use uh, at Stripe, where he worked on a lot of the developer tooling and developer experience of that organization. Uh, and he's just joined a company called Anthropic, which is trying to develop AI into a systematic uh, science. And hopefully we'll get into what that means uh, a little bit later in the episode. He's also the author of a fantastic technical blog and newsletter, which I subscribe to and highly recommend uh, to anyone who's interested in sort of like system, uh, computer system deep dives. It's really great. I enjoy reading it. And uh, yeah, I guess without further ado, Nelson, uh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the kind words in the intro. Cool. So, you know, before we get into your numerous, you know, programming uh, accomplishments, uh, I always like to start things off by asking folks how they originally got into computers. So, you know, what was your kind of origin story? Yeah, I got into computer programming in what I feel like was a very popular way at a particular point in time, which was that I liked video games as a kid and I wanted to write video games. So I learned how to program. And then I kind of quickly discovered that writing video games is hard and it wasn't actually something I was naturally all that good at, but that I really enjoyed the programming part. And I just sort of voraciously took off from there learning as much as about software engineering and programming and computers as I could. And haven't really stopped since. That's cool. What, what was the video game that originally, you know, got you interested? Do you remember? I don't remember if there was a specific one or or what. I um, I grew up on the Nintendo sixty four, and uh, that was nice. that was my kind of formative platform as a child that I played a lot of a lot of games on, <laughs> and kind of yeah. learned learned the joy of gaming and. I love I love Nintendo games to these days, uh, and then also I think one of the other platforms that really got me was we got the TI calculators in school at some point. The TI eighty three plus I think I had you know yeah. to do math with, but those are programmable in their own dialect of BASIC, 
And so I, I started kind of learning to write games there and I would just program on them during class when I was bored or distracted. And I actually eventually learned a bit of assembly programming very early on because the other language huh. that you can program the TI calculators is by writing Z80 assembly against TI's kind of OS. Uh, and that's the only way to get high performance and all the really good games were written in that. So huh. I started learning that without having any idea what I was doing at that point. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. You know, I actually got into programming the same way. I had a T83 plus and I was fortunate enough to get one with like the manual and in the manual they had like a basic tutorial that I read through. Yeah. But I I never made it to the the assembly. So you were <laughs> you were operating at a, another level. I topped out at, at just the basic, and I uh, yeah. Well, the, the assembly was a, was a high stakes game because there was no memory protection on those things. So kinda <laughs> any mistakes would would like reboot the calculator, and I think it was even relatively possible to kind of completely brick it and require a factory reset of some sort. Um, <laughs> and uh, kind of especially without having any idea what you're doing, it was a very uh, it was a very slow process. Often of like you try to write something it would fail you wouldn't have any idea why it failed but you'd have to go like take out the batteries and the like backup battery and reset the ram and start over yeah uh-huh. yeah do you re- do you remember any of the programs you wrote like do you have any like crowning achievements that you're super proud of uh on, the- on that platform um honestly i feel like the one in the weird way that i was most proud of was one of the very first i did i built a sort of trivial whack-a-mole game where you know like there's little moles would peer off and you had to whack them using the the number pad as a three by three grid corresponding to a three by three grid on the screen nice Uh, and that was in ti basic it was super basic the graphics were like ascii art but (laughs) for many this was before we had this this was like shortly after we got the calculators and before we had discovered the wealth of games that were freely available (laughs) online so for a lot of my classmates this was the first calculator game we had ever encountered (laughs) so kind of for the first time like during math class we could be sitting on our calculator playing games instead of paying attention to the teacher and even though it was a kind of crappy game just like the the first that anyone had ever seen was a little bit mind-blowing and uh you know how did that affect your relationship with your math teacher nelson (laughs) I had a, I had a little bit of a rocky relationship with with math teachers when I was younger, especially because that is still sort of doing a lot of like very rote mathematics, and I just I've never been good at the plugging through the details of equations, and I hadn't really quite learned actually yet that I liked math once you get to the more interesting conceptual stuff. Yeah. Um, once you so I, I, I was not actually a star math student in those days, but, but fortunately by high school, I found math teachers that were sort of much better at teaching the, the interesting parts, the helping you grasp the, the kind of conceptual bits, the patterns and the, the, the beauty of, of the sort of methods of abstract reasoning that, that math can, can bring to you. But yeah, in those days, it was, this was like eighth grade or so, I think. It was, it was a little rocky going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great teachers can make such a difference at, at, at that stage, uh, for sure. So, you know, I think the first thing that, uh, I guess, like, put you on my radar was uh, the kernel hacking stuff that, that you were doing. So, wh- what was the line or trajectory from, you know, TI-83 to <laughs> hacking into the kernel? Because I imagine, you know, there are a couple steps or stages <laughs> in there. <laughs> Yeah, I think in in college really was where I got into both um, kernel engineering and low level systems engineering in general, 
and then into kind of security work. Mm-hmm. And I'd say I had a group of friends in college, many of whom who would go on to found Casebyte, which was the the first company I had a full time job at. Yeah, but who just were really great developers and were kind of collectively really interested in systems programming, systems engineering, the the lower level, the bits closer to the metal. Mm-hmm. I took the MIT's operating systems class with a number of them and we all just had a blast. It was nice. one of the hardest classes we ever took, but also really fun, very hands-on, sort of over the course of the class you build a basic unix operating system that runs on x86 you know you can you can boot it on your own laptop if you wanted yeah. more or less from scratch and kind of really understand all of the layers so i i got into systems programming kind of cuz everyone around me was doing it and I, i thought it was fascinating but i think it was really you know you have a group of friends who are doing something and you think it's interesting that's just a great motivation to keep going yeah uh kind of similarly i was curious about sort of security and exploit development it's very adjacent to systems programming because both of them involve kind of peering underneath your usual abstraction layers and security engineering uh, uh, vulnerability development is one of the fields that absolutely most strongly forces you to look under abstraction barriers and to understand how things are actually working under the hood yeah um and so i i started by just like you know read some online tutorials read the classic paper on smashing the stack hmm. and started fiddling and then just playing with exploits on my laptop um writing toy c programs with trivial vulnerabilities learning how to exploit them reading other work and then when i graduated i uh like i said a bunch of those kind of same friends that i was in the the computer club with who were really good systems programmers started this company Casebyte where we mm-hmm. were uh we were doing hot patching for the Linux kernel so applying security updates by modifying code in place without a reboot um like very very deep systems work it was uh, my friend Jeff's uh master's thesis was the foundational work and cool. uh, he actually kind of did that work to some degree in conjunction with a bunch of the group of us that were in that the the MIT kind of computer club and and thinking hard about systems work. Mm-hmm. So four or five of my friends founded that and then I joined a year later when I graduated. I was I was a year out behind them. And so we got into that to do secure to do um a general purpose tool for applying updates to the OS kernel without reboots. Yeah. It turns out that the main reason anyone cares about applying updates without reboots is for security updates. It's because they have a machine that has in many cases local users who are untrusted they're a kind of shared hosting provider of some hmm. sort and when there's a security update they want to be able to apply it without taking downtime immediately because they sort of actually those are the ones that have the most attack surface that have the most motivation yeah. to apply these updates and so we kind of accidentally or sort of discovered that you know we were really building a security tool as more so than a kind of general sysadmin or operations tool interesting and so we spent a lot of time working with kernel security patches because we were figuring out how to apply them in a, a zero downtime way trying to understand the kinds of patches trying to track things that might be coming down the pipeline to get ahead of them and then that really intensified my interest in in low level security and and kernel security engineering um and 
I found a number, I, I kind of started doing kind of hobby vulnerability research, looking for bugs in the Linux kernel, really just because I thought it was fun. Yeah. Um, wasn't really part of my job. And I found a couple of, of interesting things, found some, like one kind of interesting bug class or, or like meta bug, a sort of bug that made other bugs worse. Uh, I also found a bug in the KVM hypervisor, the, the, the KVM hypervisor is the sort of Linux's native hypervisor for running virtual machines. I found a bug there that would let you break out of a VM guest and run code in the host. Wow. Um, that one seemed cool enough that I took the time to write a full exploit for it and, and actually gave a talk at Black Hat and DEF CON. Uh, I, I reported it appropriately and, and got it fixed in kind of months before I, I gave the talk and the, the exploit wasn't super weaponized. It wasn't a, it was really just intended as a demo, but it was, yeah. it was a lot, just a lot of fun and really cool to stitch something like that end to end and just see it work of you're running code in a VM, you run some commands and then suddenly a window pops up on the host and it's escaped. Yeah. Not sure if you've kind of kept up with the security world. Um, I'm a security noob, by the way. Um, but like, do you have any thoughts on the, the current state of, uh, you know, Linux security in, in the kind of container uh, world? Yeah, I, I haven't. I, I've dropped out of, of being kind of full time in that world. And kind okay. of we might, we might actually see this as a bit of a pattern through my career. I feel like as I go deep somewhere and then I feel like I understand it pretty well. And then it's more interesting to me to go learn something new yeah. than to stay somewhere where I'm an expert. So I've, I've followed it from a distance. I'm less close to it. Um, I think in many ways, we're at very similar places to where we were, but more so. I do think that there's been a real trend over the last decade or so since I kind of left security of, I think the, the defense side, the people who are trying to build, how, figure out how to build secure systems and coordinate security, just like really leveling up in maturity and sophistication and mm. rigor of thinking about the whole, the whole system and where exploits come from and where to invest effort and, moving beyond the level of just thinking about individual bugs to, to much more systematic analyses. Yeah. I think it's really exciting that there's been a lot of work in the last couple of years, really, and it's starting accelerating in, in getting rust to the point where it's usable for a broader and broader class of low level system software. Yeah. I think that rust, like rust will not fix every security bug ever, but uh, memory safety bugs of the sort of use after freeze, buffer overflows, the kinds of things that C and C++ are known for. Right. Every study we've done says that they are something like 75% of exploitable bugs in the wild. Hmm. And working in something like Rust basically fixes most of those. Yeah. And that there's work right now to get Rust support into the upstream kernel. Uh, I know several of the people working on it, although I haven't really been involved. Oh, that that's seems cool. likely to land. Yeah. There's increasing energy, like uh, some of the, the some of the WebAssembly runtimes are written in Rust. There's um, there's uh, Amazon has a hypervisor written in Rust that, yeah. uh, and actually the Google has a has a hypervisor written in rust that they use on their chromebooks yep uh i don't think that's gonna kind of completely you know fix security but i think as we push that work through it has the possibility to really change the shape of the security landscape and how easy it is to find exploitable bugs and things yeah that's cool i mean it, you 
kind of catching these things uh, as far you know left, I guess, in, in the software lifecycle as possible. You know, building it into the language um, features that prevent these bugs from being created in the first place. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, I'm I'm optimistic about it, but at the same time, it's it's going to be it's going to be a long road, and we have we have a lot of software written in C and C plus plus, and so. But I think it's also exciting to see that the the people think the people working on these things are increasingly sophisticated around thinking about all right, it's, we're not going to rewrite the whole world, but mm-hmm. where are the places where we can add the most value for the least work? How can we target there? How can we use those to? get get footholds and just build out all of the infrastructure and and interoperability that are necessary in order to make this easy to adopt and then encourage more and more of the next generation of software to be written on these tools cool so you you mentioned uh your mo is kind of you go deep in in one area and then you know learn what you uh want out of it and and then you kind of look uh, elsewhere for kind of a, a new uh area to 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 learn and explore um you know about when did you start to kind of top out in the s- security world and what was the next thing that got your attention yeah so I I was at Case Splice. Case Splice ended up being acquired by Oracle, who mm-hmm. wanted the the Case Splice technology for their uh, Linux distribution, Oracle Unbreakable Linux. Mm-hmm. Um, that that Case Splice team actually still exists within Oracle. Contains many a number of the people that we hired to to operate the technology. That's been really cool to see that we. We we built we built a technology and a team that was enduring yeah. enough to last for for a decade or so yeah. after all of the founders left. I think that in some ways that's one of the parts of of that whole time that I'm most proud of is that we we built really cool technology, but we we also just like built something that was valuable enough and that we we taught the next generation and encoded the knowledge and sort of all of those things worked out that it that it lasted past us. It, That's awesome. You know, isn't it's, it's not the case that everyone gets all of their updates without reboots, which was sort of, you know, our, our original moonshot goal, but I think it's still still a real success that it's it's still around. The team's still doing good work. But anyways, mm-hmm. we were bought by Oracle and I kind of essentially all of the early team stayed at Oracle for a year and then decided that that it was time to go pursue something somewhere else. Yep. And and I'm kind of that was kind of my peak of involvement in the security world because I was working a little bit less hard now that we were we were acquired yeah, yeah. Uh, and spending more time looking at security stuff. And I I found it was a lot of fun, but especially doing offensive security, vulnerability research, exploit development mm-hmm. is it wasn't a great like place to do work. I found that especially at the time it was like very toxic community, very adjacent to a lot of shady folks, both <laughs> You know, both like criminal enterprises and just the sort of shittier organizations that find bugs and sell them to governments yeah. for large sums of money in exchange for keeping them quiet. Wow. And a lot of egos in that space, like very <laughs> nebulous, just sort of norms around like what's valued, what's what's wow. honored, what's good. And I just, I, I didn't love it. I, I The work was really fun and really interesting, but it also didn't really, I wasn't kind of sure where it was going and the sort of career paths in there I, I wasn't really thrilled about. I think some yep. people have made really great careers doing that, but but it wasn't for me. Yep, yep. And I kind of ended up at Stripe next, uh, almost immediately after leaving Oracle, almost by accident. I 
Uh, Greg Brockman, who is Stripe's CTO for a while and one of their very early engineers, actually worked briefly at Casebyte as an intern when he was at MIT with us. Oh, cool! Um, so I, I, I was actually his intern mentor for a summer at Casebyte, cool. and uh, you know, taught him a lot about Python development and, and <laughs> that we were working on at that point. And then he left to go join Stripe and then came back and tried to recruit me. I was very skeptical at first, but <laughs> I met more of the team. I met John and Patrick Collison yeah. and I eventually got sold that, you know, it was a, a promising business and also that they, it was sort of an interesting, good place to do interesting technical work. Yeah. Um, and so then I, you know, that of necessity resulted in me pivoting a lot towards web technologies, Ruby, a lot of infrastructure work. Um, and it was also really, it was interesting because, I, you know, I, I wasn't doing kernel development in any way. I wasn't writing any C code. I wasn't doing that little, little stuff. But it, mm -hmm. it was really valuable to come in and have a deep systems understanding to know the kernel. There was just like a lot of bugs, a lot of fiddly things that were relatively easy to debug when you understand the, the, the lower layers so yeah. deeply. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I thought it was a really fun opportunity to kind of take those skills learn new skills and then also kind of bring value to the team by being a, a good systems engineer in a way that, you know, the Stripe had incredible product people, incredible front end people, incredible yeah. Ruby developers, but, but there was a skill set that they didn't have as much of. And having some of that around was really helpful, especially on the system side as we scaled up, as we debugged scale offs and so on. Yeah. And of course, these days, you know, Stripe handles uh, some like, large percentage of all, you know, e-commerce, uh, you know, traffic uh, on, or like transactions, I, I should say, uh, uh, that happen. And so I, I imagine all that knowledge uh, came in really handy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we were, we were growing so quickly and that you, you run into all kinds of problems when you scale up that fast, just kind of everything you're doing breaks in some way. And it's, it's useful to have people who can kind of come at it from all levels of, do the low-level optimizations, start to do the, you know, systems re-architecture so that you can scale out better, um, you know, do the kind of product-level things of, of can we tweak the product to stop doing the inefficient thing to make things faster? Can we, being able to, to kind of comfortably operate at any part of the stack as a team and then to some extent as an individual, I, as I leveled up, I always made a point of trying to maintain familiarity with, with most of our stack was it was really powerful yeah so to place it in context of uh, stripe's history um how how big was stripe in terms of you know yeah i joined in late 2012 which was okay. i believe about a year after stripe's public launch and okay. stripe was around 30 employees at the time got it and, 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 and it, yeah go ahead and about about half of that was engineering so there's like I think when I joined, it was about half 15-ish engineers and then 15 people in legal sales, ops, whatever. Got it. And and in those days, was it still mostly because you know, these days it's like, you know, how how could you not join Stripe? It's huge, it's amazingly successful, it's like synonymous with e-commerce. Um, but in, in those days, the 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 initial product, if I remember correctly, was just a, a nice developer-friendly. API for accepting like credit cards, right? That's right. The initial product was purely credit card transactions in the U.S., uh, USD only. You know, 
almost entirely the developer API part of it, not really any front end or anything else. Got it. it was, yeah, it was much more, much more bare bones and, and focused product. And yeah, I think it was when I joined, it was, I think Stripe was starting to become kind of trendy or seen as successful and desirable. We'd, we'd been launched for a year and we're clearly seeing traction and growth. Yeah. It definitely wasn't widely known yet. It definitely wasn't yeah. uh, clear runaway success. There was, I think, a lot of commentators said, okay, Stripe's doing pretty well, but you're like, but kind of this, this product is like, it's kind of niche. It, sure, it's great for onboarding, but customers will churn off of Stripe as they scale. Mm. If you're a multinational or you need to operate across the world, Stripe can't handle you. <laughs> it's really unclear that they'll ever grow outside of their niche. Yeah. Um, but kind of by the time that you're successful enough that people start writing contrarian pieces around you, it's usually <laughs> an evidence that you're like, you're achieving some real success. And yeah. we were in the er very early days of kind of that stage of some success, not yet clear if it would scale, some skeptics, but also above all, just still pretty small. The absolute dollar values were small. The number of people were small. The number of people who'd even heard of us were small. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine there are extremely uh, thankful and, and lucky to have someone like you join, join the team at that point, because I feel like one of the things that a company has to do is, you know, you have your early adopter market, um, you know, which is like, let's make this, you know, user-friendly and, and really accessible to this segment of the market. But then as you grow the business, you know, scaling uh, becomes a first order concern. Is Did you immediately dive into kind of that you know, area of problem or did you first, you know, start in another area and kind of gradually get pulled into that? No, I was, I was working on sort of infrastructure from the very beginning, okay. but because of the, the rate of growth, infrastructure was essentially synonymous with scale, with scaling okay. work because yeah. we, we were growing so quickly that we would, you know, outgrow our database clusters, outgrow our scale in some way, just, you know, constantly. And so, Every, almost every big project we had in flight was in some way about supporting the next generation of scale. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and I guess and there's, there's, real, there's at least two axes of scale there. One is just transaction volume, number of customers, number of requests, but also growing the team is its own kind of scaling of keeping CI fast, keeping developer tools stable, keeping get working, keeping code quality up, keeping developers able to, you know, get started and just like run code at all on their dev box while everyone else is continually adding dependencies and adding, yeah. adding new features, et cetera. There's a, you know, size of the team is a very real scaling access as well. Yeah. I, I think Stripe is known today, uh, you know, among other things for having a, a very great um, developer experience internally. And I think you you probably played a, a big hand in that. Um, wh what was the point uh, at which the company started prioritizing developer experience? And what was the point that you got involved in, in those efforts? Yeah, I think it's something we always valued a fair bit, like mm -hmm. on a on some sort of like sort of values level. And I think I think Patrick Collison, one of the founders, always really was really obsessed with the power of tools and the power of making it easy to do things. And kind of in some way that was Stripe's whole thing was you've been able yeah. to accept credit card credit cards online forever, but if we can make it really easy, that's a game changer, even if it's in some sense already possible. 
Yeah. And there was a somewhat similar attitude of, of which we want to make sure that our developers internally can be really productive and effective. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's not something that we really funded in a concerted way until maybe 2014 or 2015 that we had a, a team that really, we, we, had, we had individuals, including me, who would spend time on developer tooling yeah. and various things, but it wasn't a, a really a priority area or, or funded in terms of having a standing team until maybe 2014 or 2015. Got uh, it. And it was sometimes or sometime around there that I took a three-month sabbatical because I was a little burned out on a bunch of the infrastructure work I was doing. And when I came back, I decided that I wanted to go work with the, the developer tools team full-time as my, as my next project. Uh, they, they weren't called developer tools, but that's what they were. We, yeah. That every team at Stripe has been renamed 30 times as, <laughs> as the org grows and grows yeah. and scales and moves managers around, et cetera. But it, yeah, I, I joined the developer tools team I think it was probably 2016. I might I might be off by a year. Okay, got it. And and what sort of projects uh, came out of that team? Yeah, so I think one one big thread was the the just developer environment that laptops that developers work with on their laptop day to day. I'm writing code. How do I run that code? You know, that code runs in, a, in an HTTP API endpoint or maybe an async job. How do I run it? How do I test it? Yep. Uh, and uh, as you grow, just, just like this becomes a surprisingly hard problem because you have a huge number of dependencies. You depend on MySQL and Redis and RabbitMQ and Kafka and mm-hmm. S3 and you need to have appropriate versions of all of those configured and credentials wired up. You start building multiple services and you need to be able to run things that, that work on those. So just the, the environment that developers used, we ended up building a pretty sophisticated setup where developers would code locally, lap, code would live on their laptops. Hmm. It would get synced up to a dev box in the cloud all of Stripe servers would be auto-started auto on demand. If you, if you talked to the right port, there was a proxy that was like, ah, you're talking to the HTTP, you're talking to the API server. I'll yeah. go spin up the API server. I'll keep it running. So you only pay the startup cost on the first run. Yeah. But you know, this way you can have lots of services. You don't have to pay the cost for starting all of them. You only pay the cost for the ones that you're developing on. Yep. But you, the developer, never have to think about, oh, today I'm working on the admin interface. Let's start the admin interface yeah uh, they would do source code watching to auto restart on changes they would do various chain various tricks to do code lo- make code loading faster and do kind of partial loads so that you only reload part of the code on change yeah all of the dependencies would run on the server and then because these servers were prevent centrally centrally provisioned and you synced your code to them you could always throw away your dev box and get a fresh one with the latest configuration, yeah. which meant that it was very easy for infrastructure teams and, and tools teams to maintain this server and keep it always working. And if you have a problem, you just throw yours away and restart. Yeah. Uh, and there's kind of nothing magic there, but I think one of the things that, that I really learned firsthand there is just there's a lot of value in in picking a problem and just identifying like all of the rough edges and sort of doing them all well and mm. working through the whole life cycle and just really making something that works well as a, as a finished unit. 
And like that was one, I mean, that was one, one of the biggest things that we, one of the biggest like distinct projects that we did during that phase of time. And yeah. it was really a game changer for a lot of people of, of sort of meant that on day one, you were guaranteed that you could download a laptop or you'd be <laughs> issued a laptop and you could have a checkout and everything would just run, you know, and you'd never lose time on day one trying yeah. to get your dev environment working that people who had people who like, you know, managers who would, wouldn't really write code, but would occasionally have to come back to write code after not having touched it for three months. Yeah. Like that used to always be a nightmare because you'd have a three month out of date environment. The first like new setup instructions wouldn't work, but also the incremental instructions didn't work. <laughs> Like we fixed that yeah. problem too, because we just got the one flow, blow it away, give you a fresh box in the cloud, sync the source code up. Um, centralized infrastructure takes care of all of the details. Yeah. I mean, that's such an amazing um, undertaking and accomplishment. Uh, I think not just because the underlying technology is really, uh, in my opinion, like hard to get right and, and make, you know, a good experience, but also the fact that, yeah, you know, this was this predates kind of the current wave of uh, cloud IDE uh, companies. So, and and if I recall correctly, at that point in time, it was like every single kind of cloud IDE or dev environment in a box, um, at least like startup, had kind of not really succeeded. And I imagine, like, did you get pushback at all internally? Like, you know, oh, we're not really sure if this is going to pan out, or like, oh, nothing's going to ever be as good as a local dev environment, despite all no. its ports. So, so I think I think one of the things was that was that Stripe had almost always since I started done a model of people write code locally and we have a script that R syncs it to the cloud and you mm. run services in the cloud. So sort of that basic model um, had been around forever. And I think the big thing that we did was really doing the work to make it used to be. I think the big change was it used to be you would have a server that was like statically assigned to you in the cloud and was long lived and you were somewhat responsible for I see. and moving to the world where those were real, truly ephemeral and replaceable yeah. and then just doing a lot of the polished work to make it all work. Um, so, so it wasn't a, a radical redesign more so much as it was a taking roughly the shape of the thing we're doing. There's always been some battle because that used to be the main way of doing things, but, but Stripe was never a place that kind of enforced workflows on developers. So some people would run code on their laptop for a while, we had a vagrant setup where people would run on a VMware VM that ran hmm. on their laptop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like a hybrid set of things. There was some pushback around kind of trying to invest in one workflow and optimize it because people who still wanted to run code locally were going to be like, oh, are you going to break my workflow? Is this still going to hmm. work? Um, we kind of ended up with compromise where, you know, we wouldn't explicitly break their workflow, but they were they were responsible for it, right? We wouldn't. We also wouldn't go out of our way to maintain these sort of unsupported workflows. Yeah, and we would try to make our workflow good enough that people wanted to switch. And I think, by and large, we succeeded. You think the fact that uh, Stripe's main language was Ruby, um, uh, and it was you know Ruby is a dynamically typed language, played a role in making this easier? Just because there was no like, oh, but I compile it on my local machine, and that's like tied to the editor experience because you know I get code intelligence um, or. I don't think it made a huge impact. Okay. By this point, we actually had our own build system that would have to run in order to run code because. 
Interesting. We, we, we actually, even though Ruby is fairly, you know, Ruby is a very dynamic language and you can do all kinds of metaprogramming. Mm-hmm. We started doing a bunch of code generation where we would generate Ruby code ahead of time. Yeah. In many cases for performance reasons. Uh, we also, we built a auto loader where you, our Ruby code at Stripe has no require statements. A require statement in Ruby is how you like load uh, another file of code. Yeah. At Stripe, there's no require statements and the entire code base is statically analyzed to figure out which symbols are defined where. And then we have a custom auto loader that ensures that if you reference a name, it is loaded. And then hmm. that also does static analysis so that in production, we preload every symbol you're ever going to need so wow. that... So that um, because a problem with auto-loading is that it gives you very inconsistent performance. Like the first time mm. you, you hit something, it's yeah, very yeah. slow. In development, that's actually great, right? In development, you only want to load the things that you need because that means that you can restart and you hit one endpoint and you, you don't have to pay the cost of all of the rest of the code in the system. In production, you want to load everything at startup and then have predictable performance. And actually, like a couple of years before we built Sorbet, uh, the team that I would later join, but wasn't on at the time, built this autoloader and this static analysis thing that did a sort of coarse-grained static analysis on Ruby code okay. that that would power this autoloader system. But that did mean that there was this static analysis step that had to run yeah. as part of the workflow. They they made it kind of incremental and worked so that a, a like a, an out of date version would usually work. So it wasn't that you were waiting on it on every build, but you had to have a server continually running running that. So we already had a, a fairly sophisticated kind of build environment. Interesting. I think it's possible. Maybe you're, you're thinking if, you know, if, if we were in an IDE and people did their builds through the IDE, it might've been a problem. I think it might've been a problem, but I feel like it would have been a solvable one. We would yeah. have figured out a way to do the build remotely or cross compile or write a custom plugin. Or I think we probably wouldn't have had the IDE be, sort of source of truth for the build. So maybe you you would have done a dev build locally to get compilers and syntax checking and in concurrent in you know in, in parallel we'll do a real build on your dev box in the background in the cloud so that the code is ready when you want to run it. I can imagine a lot of solutions we would have done. I think mm-hmm. kind of one of the key things here is just like a lot of things are possible if you're willing to staff a team and make it their uh, of, of good people and make it their goal to do it. Yeah. And at some point that was kind of what we decided we're like, all right, developer experience is important. It's a huge multiplier on everyone's productivity. It is worth having some people who just work on it and, and some quite good engineers. Some, some of the best engineers I worked with were on that team investing in everyone else's productivity in a holistic way. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, quick you know, probably stupid technical question. Yeah. I, I'm not super familiar with the uh, Ruby internals, but if you were uh, changing things so that you were kind of preloading, like, well, statically detecting um, which symbols were used where, and then preloading those in production, was that does that mean you're running like a, a fork of the Ruby runtime? Or is there uh, no. a mechanism in so, the language to... Yeah, yeah Ruby is sufficiently dynamic that you can do that all from within the Ruby language. Okay, got uh, it. Ruby actually has its own autoloader, which we didn't use for somewhat technical reasons. Hmm. But you can... Um, you can... Well, we... R- Ruby has an auto has a generic autoload mechanism where you can basically register hooks that say, got when it. a name is referenced and you don't know what that name is, call me and I'll provide it for you. And we, we did we uh, used we, we used that infrastructure. Ruby has a it's sort like of the spoke. not found or like un, it's it's how like 
uh, maybe this is different, but like Active Record, like cat, cat, uh, hooks into this. If you're... yeah, it's, it's very similar. It's, okay. it's a slightly different technical mechanism than than method missing, which yeah, is yeah, the, sorry, the, the one that you might be familiar with. Yeah. But it's, it's a very it's very similar. Yeah. Okay, got it. So got yeah, it. we we were we were running on stock Ruby, uh, but but Ruby has enough dynamic features that we could we could layer this on top. Okay, got it. So you mentioned sorbet, which is one of the things that you know I I uh, would would love to learn more about. So you know sorbet, sorbet is the the Ruby static uh, or the Ruby type checker. Um, t- tell us about uh, that project, how that got off the ground, and, and what it does. Yeah, so sorbet, as you said, is a is a static type checker for Ruby. If 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 listeners have ever worked with MyPy in Python or with Flow or TypeScript in JavaScript uh, or uh, Hack in PHP. Facebook kind of started this whole trend. Mm-hmm. It's these systems that take an existing language that's dynamically typed and add some sort of static type system on them, mm-hmm. uh, usually in, a, in an incremental way so that you can mix code that has types with code that doesn't have types in some way. We built that, but for Ruby. We, we'd actually known slash suspected for a long time that we wanted to do this. We, one of the founding members of the developer tooling team at Stripe was this guy named Paul Tarjan, who was a fairly early Facebook engineer who worked on Hack and HHVM, Facebook's PHP VM there. Yeah. So he'd had experience working on that, but I think more importantly, he had just seen the rollout at Facebook of the change of going from a kind of giant monolithic code base without types to a giant monolithic code base with types. Mm-hmm. And he was just very adamant that it's that when you're at that scale, it's just an amazing quality of life improvement to be able to add types to your code base, to be able mm-hmm. to make explicit your interface boundaries and yep. what objects are expected where and check those. And so he always wanted to do this project at Stripe me and a couple of other engineers were, were enthusiastic about it. I've always, I, 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 always, I thought it made a lot of sense at scale. I, I've always yeah. been partial to, to static types myself. I feel like at, at yeah. small scale, especially, it's a little bit of a religious war slash like <laughs> preferences thing. If some people sure. have very strong opinions either way. I think that when you get a very large code base with a lot of people contributing to it, in, in my mind, it's an absolute no-brainer that types help because they... Yeah. They give you richer tools for communicating abstraction boundaries and layers and communicating between developers and teams. Yeah. So I thought it would be a good idea. And I always thought it would be fun to work on. I've always enjoyed working on compilers and type systems. I'd never really worked on one in earnest, but mm-hmm. I, I dabbled in them. I, I had a couple of small patches in LLVM to fix bugs that I'd run into it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, always, I thought it was a good idea and I'd always thought it would be a fun project. And we kind of just sat on it as an idea for a couple of years, like kind of making noise of, we think we want to eventually go this way. It doesn't make sense yet. We don't have the funding for it. Yeah. Um, and then at some point we, we hired this other engineer, Dmitry Petrashko, okay. who is an incredible engineer who had just wrapped up his PhD working in type systems and compilers and building a lot <laughs> of the Scala 3 compiler. Okay. And we basically yeah. hired him with the pitch of like, come join us, build the type checker for Ruby. Yeah. Uh, and kind of then we, so then we, we put together the team for it, ended up being Dimitri, Paul, and me. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of built or sort of designed the initial prototype, shopped the idea around internally. Mm-hmm. I think there was, 
there was some pushback internally. Some people were like, this, this seems crazy. This is way too ambitious. Is this even going to work? Can you even type Ruby? Is this a good use of resources? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had yeah. a manager who actually was also ex-Facebook. So he kind of also seen the success of the project in Facebook, yeah. who was enthusiastic, who got it, who was able to sort of buy enough organizational air cover for us to get off the ground. Yeah. Um, and then kind of once we were going, we just focused on trying to get to a point where it was delivering obvious value fast enough that, that it sort of became self-sustaining. Um, yeah. That's awesome. One of the things that you didn't mention was kind of the, the editor experience, like uh, hover tool tips, go to definition, find references. Was that uh, a... I guess, design goal of Sorbet at all, or was it? Yeah. So that's okay. actually, that was, that was kind of interesting because Dimitri always had that in mind as a long-term design goal. I think okay. he'd seen in his previous work in compilers and Scala of kind of the power of that and of the power of how having a, a sophisticated compiler makes that possible. Yeah. I think I personally didn't really see the vision at that point, or I was like, that seems like nice in theory, but will we ever get it work? Will people use it? Yeah. Um, and I, I think Paul was also like less sold on the idea, but okay. I think Dimitri ended up being kind of absolutely right. Uh, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't one of the first things we built. The first thing we built was a static offline type checker. You run it once you get your type errors. Uh, I see. But, but eventually we augmented it to have an LSP server and IDE integration so that you could hover over things and get types and get compile errors in your IDE yeah. and get, get, you know, type aware, go to definition. And I think that, that did end up being absolutely huge. People loved it. It was kind of a game changer for how people related to code. So I think, I think Dimitri was kind of absolutely right when he saw ahead to that's, that's one of the things where this is going to be a game changer. So, so these days, the developer environment in Stripe is you have a dev environment uh, um, in a box that, that's like running uh, on a server somewhere. And then you have Sorbet providing static type checking and, and also kind of IntelliSense or, or code intelligence uh, to... Is the editor a uh, like cloud-based editor or is it like a like local... Yeah, the, editor? the editor is... The, the sort of the default editor, we, again, Stripe, Stripe has never quite been willing to force things on developers sure. for better or worse, but the, sure. the, the flow that's supported works well, really well. Uh, at least when I left, it's, it's been a, like almost two years now and it's possible that it's changed. But at least when I left, it was, it was local VS code. You would run VS okay. code on your laptop. Yeah. Uh, VS code would actually, Sorbet would run on your dev box in the cloud and VS code would talk to it over a network connection and, yep. you know, and, it would stream errors and and uh, you know do do RPC, you know LSP RPC calls to get type information, go to definition, etc. to yeah. the server. So Sorbet ran again in the dev environment in a box where this kind of central dev teams can make sure that everything works, can access logs if they have to, etc. But talks to the editor over a over a network pipe. Yeah, that's such a cool uh, setup. Um, do you have a sense of, of uh, whether Sorbet has caught on in the kind of broader Ruby community? Um, you know, like Python is, it feels like types are, are, are more of a thing in Python now. TypeScript obviously is, is, um, uh, has been hugely successful in JavaScript world. Where, where does the Ruby community uh, stand with types? Yeah, I think that the Ruby community, whatever that means, is I think like 
don't love types. I think kind of Rubyists really love these sort of very fluent, short, like expressive things and they sort of regard types as having Ruby yourself. But yeah. uh, however, the like large organizations that run Ruby have by and large been a lot more receptive because they've had similar similar problems. So mm-hmm. Sorbet has had a lot of contributions from the Shopify team. Shopify is also a, a giant Rails application. Yeah. They run Sorbet, they contribute back. Yeah. Uh, I believe Airbnb runs Sorbet. There's a, no, like a lot of, a number, many of the large Ruby installations that I know of run Sorbet. I don't think GitHub does, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and actually the, the other day I was noticing, uh, I was running a homebrew command on my Mac and I saw that it was installing Sorbet. Interesting. And, uh, as you might know, homebrew is written in Ruby and yeah. they seem to be going through and adding Ruby type annotations to homebrew. Yeah. Uh, and so that like that means that Sorbet is now running on kind of basically every developer Mac in in existence, yeah. which I thought was was pretty cool to discover. That's awesome. So I, I think I, adoption has been somewhat unevenly distributed, but as best I can tell, most or, or most large Ruby projects have picked it up because they see the advantages at at scale, both in terms of code size and team size. And so yeah. um, I think it it. it I don't know that it's widespread, but it's it's got some real real adoption, which is has been really exciting. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, another open source project that you're uh, known for is LiveGrep, uh, which is a code search engine. Can you tell me about uh, that? And you know, uh, wh- when did you start uh, building that? Yeah. So, so if, if listeners haven't used LiveGrep, uh, there's a there's a demo instance at LiveGrep.com, but it's this code search engine which is very simple premise, which is it's a, a regular expression search engine over large code bases. So you type in a regex, it shows you all of the matching lines, and it does so more or less live. Like as you type character by character, the, the new results show up. Yeah. And LiveGrep came out of, it was actually also during the time when I was at Oracle after Case Splice and before Stripe. Uh, this was in the window where Google Code Search, which you may or may not even remember, but used, Google used to run this project called Google's Code Source Code Search, yeah. which was search over basically all of the open source code in the world using regular expressions. Yep. Uh, Google had recently sunset Google Code Search, and there weren't really any replacements yet. And Russ Cox, who had been the author of Google Code Search had not yet released what he would release was a series of blog posts on how Google code search had worked. Mm-hmm. So I was missing, I and, and a bunch of my developer friends were missing Google code search and we were kind of talking about how the heck do you build a search <laughs> engine that uses regular expressions? It's yeah. not super obvious how you build an index that can make that efficient. Yep. And so LiveGrep originally started purely as a way to explore the technical question of, of how do you make fast, regular expression search? Yep. And because it existed in this window where, where Russ Cox kind of hadn't yet released the blog posts explaining how co- Google code search worked, mm-hmm. I and some friends kind of figured out our own indexing solution, data, data structure solution, from, kind of from more or less from first principles and from scratch. And so LiveGrep has a kind of wacky index that I'm not really aware of anyone else using for regular expression search. Um, it has some, some definite trade-offs compared to the trigram indexes that Google code search and that most popular regex search engines use these days. Yeah. Um, has some advantages, has some very real disadvantages, but I, I thought it was certainly a lot of fun to develop. But 
But yeah, so I, I built that purely as a tech demo of like, can I make this fast? And then I kind of discovered that like, once I made it fast, like, oh, like this is actually kind of a powerful interface and yeah. got it. Uh, you know, when I went to Stripe, I stood up an instance there, like mostly for fun, but then it ended up being really popular. Yeah. It's still running since I left. People swear by it. Yeah. Dropbox had an instance internally. I know a lot of ex Stripe people have, wherever they've moved on, have stood up a live graph instance with them because they thought it was so powerful. Yeah. So that, that's also been really cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm trying to find this tweet from uh, one of your former colleagues, Patrick McKenzie, about how useful this tool is, where he was saying like, you know, whenever someone, oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, when folks ask me, a que- this is Patrick McKenzie uh, tweet. Um, when folks ask me a question about our code base internally, I try to A, answer the question, B, say, if I were trying to find the answer to that question with our tools, here's my entry point, here's the code search query, uh, I mean, the live grep query, and here's my mental heuristic for why I'd click on result number three. Uh, And he goes on to say, uh, since it's publicly available, let me mention that the most common tool I use for answering these questions is live grep, and that I intend to boot up a live grep instance on the first day of every startup for the rest of my life. It borders on miraculous. So <laughs> it doesn't get uh, much better than that as far as user testimonials go. Yeah, a lot. It's, it's been really, it's been really rewarding seeing like a live grep doesn't have a very doesn't have a super wide user base, but it has a lot of users who really swear by it, which which I feel really really proud of. Yeah. And maybe speak a little bit more about the the implementation, because I think that's interesting, because a, a lot of code search engines, there's a number, you know, Sourcegraph is obviously a code search engine. Um, there's also uh, Hound, which was implemented at Etsy, um, and, uh, you know, OpenGrok uh, as well, um, uh, from, I think, originally Sun Microsystems, now Oracle. Um, but a, a lot of these uh, code search en- engines are took inspiration from the Russ Cox uh, uh, blog posts about you know building a trigram index as, as a backend, um, but it's super interesting that you kind of uh, almost like took the concept of code search and uh, tried to reverse engineer what you thought would be the, the optimal implementation and came up with a different backend which works extremely well but is not a trigram index. So you know what if not a trigram index, uh, what is the the backend uh, the backing index for for LiveGrep? Yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll get a little technical here. I have a, a blog post that explains some of it. Maybe I should actually do a, an updated version of that because I think I got, got it's tweaked a little bit. But I have a, I have a blog post that explains it. We can maybe add that in the show notes or something. But LiveGrep uses a data structure called a suffix array, and you can think of a suffix array as you, you have some string of text and you take every suffix of that string. So the kind of the whole string, then the substring starting at index one, the substring starting at index two, mm-hmm. you take all of those suffixes and you sort them. Mm-hmm. And so now you have a sorted list of suffixes. And now there's this property that any substring of a string is the prefix of some suffix. So we'll unpack that a little bit, right? Like it, every substring, it starts at some position. There's also a suffix that starts at that position and runs to the end of the string. And yeah. so your substring is the start of some suffix. So if I have a sorted list of all of the suffixes, I can do binary search over them mm-hmm. to find any substring of the, of the, the string I'm searching for. Now, that gives me substring search. I want regular expression search. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of regular expressions have like either a bunch of literals or character classes or, you know, 
things kind of decompose into something like that, where you're like, if you're looking for two strings, you can sort of think of that as a, you can collapse that uh, a little bit lossily. If I'm looking for foo or bar, I'm looking for either like F or B. Mm -hmm. So I can do a search in that suffix array to find all of the, the ranges starting with F and all of the ranges starting with B. Mm -hmm. And then I can recurse and find everything starting with F O or if I'm going case insensitive and I want like capital F or lowercase F followed by capital O or lowercase O, mm -hmm. I start by finding the capital F range and the lowercase F range. Those are all like contiguous ranges because we're, we're, we're in a sorted array. Yeah. And then within each of those, I find lowercase O and uppercase O. Okay. Because those are also, and so sort of I've expanded out into these four ranges um, in this way that is like, if, if I do this for a length n string, I get exponentially many, but in practice, most of them disappear because like mm. your code probably doesn't have all of the possible permutations of case. Yeah. And yeah. at sort of at every point, it's a pretty efficient search. Um, and then there's a well-known literature of to, to represent a suffix array rather than actually like copying all of those suffixes. You just represent mm. them as an index that this is the suffix starting at this position. Got it. So your suffix array is stored as a list of indices, the same length as your string. And there's a well-known literature on how to efficiently construct these. And I just use an open source library to build them efficiently. Interesting. And then the, the actual like indexing and lookup code is some custom stuff that I wrote. And then there's some also suffix arrays are a pretty big blow up in space because mm -hmm. for every character or in particular, actually for every byte, you have to store an index. I use 32-bit indices. Mm -hmm. So that means that you have a four of like 4x blow up or 5x blow up if you include the original text. I see. So LiveGrep has some compression where we try to we try to deduplicate lines because source code has a lot of duplicate lines in it very often. Yeah. Often like often just like white space and, and curly braces, but but also other stuff. And so yeah. we we only store a unique line once, and then we store a whole bunch of metadata that lets us reconstruct the files from that. Got so it. that we pay some computational cost and some storage costs for the metadata, but we make up for it by shrinking the corpus pretty substantially while still having it be efficiently indexable. Cool. Um, and then, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of other tricks to, to kind of make the details work out to... To once you've done this index query, you need to actually run the regex engine. And so how do you find out which exactly which spans of code to run the regex over? And then how do you reconstitute results? Yeah. Got it. It's a beautiful, elegant solution. And we'll, we'll link to that blog post in, in the show notes for people who want to kind of explore it more. Um, can, can you talk a little, a little bit about like the trade-offs between this approach and the uh, trigram-based approach? Yeah, I think the, the one of the biggest ones is is storage. The, mm -hmm. Like a trigram index is pretty compact. This blows up your your corpus by naively like five x. You mm. can get some of that back with compression. Yeah. Um, the let's see. It's been a while since I've thought through the details of this. <laughs> there are, there are some queries that my suffix arrays can index that trigrams can't really index. Mm -hmm. uh, basically because if you have, if you have this like set of character classes, the sort of number of possibilities blows up exponentially. Like if you're searching for all hexadecimal strings, yeah. you kind of have a through F times a through F times a through F. So yeah. in trigram index, 
that's like 16 to the third separate trigrams that mm -hmm. might appear at the start of a hex string. Mm -hmm. 16 to the third is a big number. It's basically too big. And so you sort of trying to index every hexadecimal string just like doesn't work. Mm -hmm. In my suffix array, you actually zero through nine is, a, is one contiguous range. And then eight through F is another contiguous range. And so you can, you, you sort of, you, you, you have two ranges and with each of those, you have two sub ranges. And so you can actually walk that down far enough to get a pretty small number of points and then run the regex query on that. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually capable of accelerating a, a broader class of searches than the trigram index are. I think it's a like open or fair question of like whether it's a useful class of searches, like is searching for every hex string something anyone ever does? Um, one of my demos is is I can search for every UUID in the Linux kernel, and that like comes back pretty quickly. Oh, that's cool. That's, yeah, you, you can't you, you can't really do that with a trigram index. Yeah, whereas the trigram approach will just look for uh, kind of like string literals in your thing and try to match against that. But if if all, yeah. everything is a wild card, then yeah, right. Well, and if everything's a wild card, you're completely lost. But if if you have something like a hex string where you sort of have a limited set of characters in relationship sure. to each other, yep, yep. you you can expand that into to trigrams and, and for instance, case insensitive searches. Mm -hmm. Right. If you have F O O, assuming we're only sure. considering the like ASCII alphabet, that's yep. two to the three is eight. That's eight trigrams. Yep, yep. We can index that. Yeah. Right. So so trigram indexes have some ability to do that, but the suffix array is is much worse is much better, rather. Um, yeah. One of the disadvantages of the suffix array is it has really bad locality characteristics hmm. because you're doing binary search in this, like, gigabyte array, and so it's very dependent on latency to the store. Got it. Whereas it's possible to store your trigrams pretty efficiently so that you do a couple of metadata searches and then you just stream the posting lists from storage. Yeah. And so it's it's... The suffix arrays are both larger and have worse locality, which means they basically have to live in memory, but they're large. Whereas it's pretty reasonable <laughs> it. to put trigrams on SSD or even hard disk. Or I have a harebrained scheme to build a trigram index that backs to S3. I don't think you could make it super fast, but I yeah. think you could probably get latencies like sub five seconds. And if you can go in S3, you could potentially like index terabytes of code for yeah. absolutely pennies with minimal infrastructure. I don't know that it works out. I have a sketch in my head, but I haven't tried to build it. Yeah. But you can, you can think about that sort of thing with, with trigram indices, and it's just like it's not even close to possible with LiveGraph's approach. Yeah, yeah. It sounds uh, just a lot more difficult to scale due to the, the memory and, uh, requirements um, and, and the, I guess, like mem memory locality. Yeah. Cool. Um, Oh, and one other advantage is, is trigrams give you back a, typically you store a list of document, like a, a list of documents under each trigram. So your trigram yep. index essentially gives you back, here's a list of files to search. Yep. The live grep index gives you back a list of lines to search. Got well, it. The way live grep works is it actually gives you, I, I give you like, a, here's a list of source lines to run the regex over. So the index Got it. potentially means that you need to run way fewer regex searches after the index. And yep. so I, I think that's, I haven't actually pushed through detail head-to-head -head benchmarks, but I think that's kind of part of the reason that LiveGrep is able to be so fast, is that yeah. the index is being a fair bit more selective. You could, you could, in principle, do that with a trigram index, but no one does, and I think there's some reasons it'd be fiddly. Yeah. Oh, and another big downside of the suffix arrays is that it's not really clear how to do incremental updates. 
Right, right, right. Because you have this massive sort, like how do you yep. do that incrementally? I have some harebrained schemes that look <laughs> kind of like um, uh, log structured merge trees, but again, they're purely harebrained schemes that exist in my head. I, I think they'd be a, a real pain to actually implement. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're running up against the end of our time here. So I, I wanted to real quick pivot back to developer experience at Stripe because um, you know when we were chatting earlier, you had some interesting things to say about the impact of uh, building developer tools and sort of like nonlinear effects as people start to use them in interesting ways uh, and, and the effects that that has on their, their productivity. Can you share some of your observations there? Yeah, uh, I think like one of the building develop, building tools of any kind is really interesting because you're you're building something that kind of humans are working closely with and it's that humans are creative and adaptable in ways that you don't predict Mm -hmm. and so sort of the impacts of your changes can be very hard to predict like if you the sort of naive view is if i make a tool twice as fast everyone who uses that tool we measure how much time they spend using that tool and we save them half that time right like that that's kind of many people's mental model And what actually happens is that those people use that tool more. If it gets faster, they may spend the same amount of time using it, but they like make twice as many queries or they switch from, they run something and they get coffee to they run it incrementally and interactively. Right. Right. Um, And in some ways that's like disappointing because it feels like you haven't saved them time. But what actually sort of what it means is that like making it faster gives them a new capability. They sort of, they often relate to this tool in a new way. Yeah, and and kind of similarly, uh, I think performance is the cleanest way to see this, but it kind of shows to any time that you make something easier or harder to do, either because it's faster or slower, or just because you've you've reduced the number of steps, or you've made the steps more annoying, or you've added cognitive overhead, yep. or you've removed right sort of you people people react by changing how they use your tool or you know when you're building developer tools if the kind of officially supported developer environment doesn't work for people in some way they they like build their own approach they start standing up their own vms and running their own things and i just think it's really interesting to know it makes it really hard often to reason about the impact of this kind of work because there are no easy metrics I think it, one of the takeaways that I take from it is that making tools easy to use, fast to use, pleasant to use is Mm -hmm. sort of really powerful and it's really powerful in ways that are hard to predict until you've done it. And so you should sort of just take it as axiomatic that it's worth a little bit more time than your organization otherwise would spend investing in tool quality because like people will will change how they relate to those tools. They'll find new ways to use it. They'll yeah. use them more often, and, and sort of that that, that tent that it often leads to this sort of productivity flywheel in somewhat non obvious ways. Yeah, one hundred percent. I feel like everyone who's worked in a developer productivity organization has struggled with how to convey the impact of of their work, um, and and we struggle with it too as a developer tools company because we're essentially making the same pitch just to you know uh, external uh, organizations yeah. and teams and it's like we go to them and say like look this code search is going to make your organization a lot more productive They're like well how much more productive like can you put that into like a spreadsheet uh form for me like you know 
sometimes they have an existing, you know, uh, like open, let's say they use open grok and they're like, Oh, you know, our developers, they say that they only use open grok, like, you know, once or twice a week on average. Uh, so like, you know, if it saves them, yeah, let's say it saves them an hour, uh, you know, each query, that's like two hours saved per person per month. That's not a lot. And we're like, well, wait a minute. Like, why aren't they using it more? Like, you know, once, once things become more performant, once it's like a friendly UI, like that totally changes the quantity of queries that you're going to do. And yeah, it's just, it's hard to boil all that down into a, I guess, like straightforward economic <laughs> argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we struggled with this a lot as a, as the developer productivity team at Stripe was figuring out how to measure success, figuring out how to, like know if what we were doing was working. Um, I think in, in large part, like, well, there's sort of a couple of parts here. Like organizationally, I think we solved it by just having an org that that really understood and believed in the value of having good developer tools. And so yep, we, yep. we didn't have to spend a lot of time justifying our existence like up the reporting chain. And that like, that's just, that's really valuable. Yeah. Um, it's also sort of a like, it kind of means that like it's, it's on you to actually kind of like there's sort of there's, there's also like sort of no one checking you in some case you have to yeah. actually like actually like convince yourself and your immediate manager or whatever like what you're doing works because right. sort of, you're not you're not going to necessarily get huge external pressure to to you know show that you're working but yeah and then internally i think we solved it in through a combination of reasons part of it was like having senior engineers whose sort of judgment and prioritization we trusted, having senior engineers who had seen things work at other organizations, right? I think we we never would have tried Sorbet if we hadn't had the, like, we might have guessed that it was a good idea, but we never would have tried it if we didn't have ex-Facebook engineers who were like, no, I've been here, I've been in an environment, the problems that you're having, I recognize them. Yeah. We, then we rolled out types and they got better. Like we've seen it happen. And, yeah. and being able to just sort of trust those people and not ask them to, to prove it or to make the spreadsheet is really powerful. And then the last thing was just trying to make sure that we had good relationships and connections to our developers. And that mm -hmm. meant both, you know, spending time individually with developers who were users of our tools and, and getting their complaints. And then also trying to find, you know, imperfect but systematic ways to, to aggregate their feedback and opinions and responses. And we ran every six months a developer tools survey where we would send a survey to every engineer in the company. We gave them a couple of like one through five satisfaction scores so that we had a couple of headline metrics we could track over time. But mostly we gave them a lot of optional free text like what's your favorite part of your developer workflow? Like what's your least favorite part? What do you think about tool X? And then we would sit down and read every single response and aggregate them into themes and pain points. And it, it, it was a lot of work. It wasn't super numeric, but it was enough that, you know, you would be able to quantify over time. Like, oh, we rolled out types and people started saying nice things about them. People were like, oh, this is better. Like I can, I can now understand code when I'm reading it. I have more confidence changing code. Yeah. And it, you know, six months is a long ass feedback cycle, but it's better than none at all. And, and I <laughs> yeah. think it was a, it, it was a, an, an expensive, slow one, but it was reasonably high quality. Would it be safe to say that your passion for developer productivity and, and tools and experience has kind of like nicely rolled into what you're doing now at Anthropic, which 
in a way is kind of like trying to improve the developer experience of debugging these complicated, hard to understand like machine learning models? I, that's an interesting one. I, I, I haven't really thought of it quite that way, although I think okay. there's, there's some of it. I, I do think that kind of coincidentally, Anthropic has a lot of people who share some of my values around there. And I think interestingly, often in different contexts, like less about developer tools, but more around, you know, uh, researchy tools or the yeah. power of, of good visualizations to sort of change how people relate to tasks or relate to understanding or the power of having good tools that are, that are, that are pleasant to work with and fast. Yeah. Um, I think the, like one of the, the deeply held, one of my like personal deeply held philosophical things that I think is actually rolled over a lot into Anthropic is I, I think in part, this comes of being a systems engineer. I have a sort of obsessive desire to actually understand the computer systems that I'm working with. Like I'm, I'm not happy <laughs> yeah. just like cargo culting or copy pasting things, unless yep. I have a decent mental model of, Ideally, like everything I'm doing all the way down to the hardware, like not yeah. in detail, but I, I want to know how the things fit, fit together. Yep. I want to have the confidence that if there is a mysterious bug or behavior I don't understand, at least in principle, I'm confident that I could go read the Ruby interpreter source code, read the kernel source code if I have to, and like understand the weird behavior. Yeah. I have another blog post about this that is kind of another one I'm very, very proud of because I think it really conveyed a, a real mindset that that I think is, is commonly held by some senior engineers, but I hadn't seen well expressed. Hmm. But I think that the Anthropic team has a somewhat similar relationship towards machine learning and AI and models. And sort of these models are, are very commonly treated as just sort of absolute magic black boxes where yeah. you build a model, maybe it trains, maybe it doesn't train. If it works, if it does train, like it does well, you know, it classifies images, it generates text, whatever you've trained it to do. Yeah. But like, don't ask how it does that. That's just sort of unknowable. Just be glad that it works. I yeah. think I, that's really the, the kind of default way of relating to large ML models. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Anthropic team has a very different attitude. They they really they sort of almost take it as, as axiomatic that these things do behave in understandable ways and in intelligible ways. And if we don't understand them, that's a bug in our understanding. That's not a statement about the universe. And yeah. so let's, let's figure out what the tools are, you know, the software tools, the, the mathematical tools, the like workflow tools, whatever it is, figure out what the tools are that sort of let us put these into an intelligible framework. Yeah. Um, and they kind of, do that from a couple of angles. And I, 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 I find that really kind of meshes with my desire to like have systems that make sense and that I understand. And I think they've, they've had some real success in the past. I think it's an open question whether this is a research agenda that will bear fruit indefinitely or where it will lead. But I, I find that really, really appealing and really powerful, I think, as well, because kind of, yeah, it, it's a very powerful sort of organizing principle of like, like dig until you find the thing that makes sense. Like if it works, you're sort of guaranteed to end up with something that you have a better understanding than if you're just like tweaking hyperparameters and seeing if it trains or not. It's, <laughs> it's sort of you're 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 just much more likely to end up in places where you can generalize. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Anthropic, as I understand it, is a is a research based 
company that is all about making AI and machine learning systems uh, safer, more understandable, and and debuggable, right? I think that's right. Yeah, we're yeah. we're we're we kind of expect we will probably eventually release products. And sort of the plan is to to eventually productize this kind of research and, and you know turn that into into products that you know other people can use and revenue streams and all that goodness. Yeah. But we're very much in in research mode right now, and we're really yeah we're we're focused on how do we build models that are safe, that are understandable, that are responsive to the sort of instructions or goals of the people operating them. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we, and how can we in general make the, the field of AI and ML more intelligible? How can we kind of make it more likely that, you know, you can, you can know whether a model is going to work or roughly how well it's going to work before you run the massive training job, right? Can we, can we find the sort of science and, and empirical and mathematical laws that govern these things in various regimes? Yeah. Okay, so my last question for you in the remaining, you know, 90 seconds that we have is, can you explain uh, what neural nets are doing? (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) We'll we'll have to save that for, uh, you should come back uh, at some point. I feel like that's... Well, my my coworker, Chris Ola, and some of his collaborators, I think if you ask that question about vision models in particular, the answer is yes. Like they, they can explain oh, cool. how vision models work. Uh, there's, they've, they've got some, like not in every detail, there's open questions, but to a yeah. way better degree than I realized. Uh, they've, they've published some really awesome work with some really great explanations and visualizations. Yeah. We can throw a link to that in the show notes as well. But it yeah. really changed my perspective on how much it is possible to know about these models and how much we do know in some cases. Yeah. We'll definitely uh, throw a link to that and maybe you can put in a good word uh, for this podcast with him. And at some point <laughs> he can come on the show and, and explain all that. I think yeah. that'd be a really fun conversation. Um, cool. So final uh, parting note, if you could ask the people listening or watching this uh, to do one thing after this episode is over, uh, what would that call to action be? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to tell you to, uh, to come apply to work at Anthropic <laughs> because we're hiring. Uh, but that's... Uh, um, that's totally fine. <laughs> but no, I, feel like, yeah. I feel like my actual answer is like some, some tool that you use, you know, yeah. probably a software tool, but like maybe some, some like meat space tool that you use that like <laughs> you find either a little bit frustrating or a little bit baffling. Like, you know, you're just sort of, there's some sharp edge that you've worked around or it's a little bit slower than you want. Like take like find time, take an hour to like, try to fix it or try to understand it, right? Like maybe you, you use Git a lot and it's like a little frustrating and a little bit magic. Like try to find a way to, to learn a little bit more about it and make it a little bit less magic. Or you run some process every day for your job and it's like too slow. Figure mm-hmm. out how to attach a profiler to it. I, I really believe in the power of, of getting to know your tools and of, of fixing the, the kind of squeaky pain points. And I want to... Uh, I want other people to kind of have the joy of succeeding at that, at that quest. That's great advice. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Nelson, for for taking the time uh, today. This was a fantastic conversation and thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. The Sourcegraph podcast is a production of Sourcegraph, the universal code search engine which gives you fast and expressive search over the world of code you care about. 
Sourcegraph also provides code navigation abilities, like jump to dev and references, and code review, and integrates seamlessly with your code host, whether you're working in open source or on a big, hairy enterprise code base. To learn more, visit sourcegraph.com. See you next time.